you, let me ask you, please, <clears throat> excuse me, to pray with me. Father in heaven, we're grateful for your kindness to us. We pray <clears throat> that we would take this wonderful act of grace and kindness, this giving to us of the scripture, that we would take it seriously, that we would realize that these are not idle words to us, but rather these are our life. And so I pray that you would, through them, Holy Spirit, bring life to us, uh, enable us to understand and believe. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Turn to First Peter in chapter 4, please. First Peter in chapter 4. I want to read verses 7 through 11. First Peter chapter 4, please. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, I mentioned last Sunday that I took up a passage that I would never otherwise take up unless I was forced to in preaching through a particular epistle. When I, when I read a, a book of the scripture that I'm going to be preaching from, I read it over a number of times uh, prior to even beginning. And, and every time I do, I mark certain passages and I always try to find various passages that I would never, ever take up unless I, I had to. And last Sunday was one of those that I had marked out and said, I better take this up because I would normally skip it. It was, it was a bit difficult to maneuver. But this Sunday is exactly the opposite. If, if I were reading through First Peter and could grab a hold of a passage of Scripture that I would love to, to take up, it would be this one. So I marked this one a, a bit differently. So I wanted to capture this uh, before vacation time and all of that. Now, I won't be able to make it through the whole passage today. I'll have to pick it up when I return. But, but uh, I will take up the premise and I, what I would think is the very first point of it. But, but we'll take that up today. But let me give you an outline just of this passage. Because it's a, it's a good summary, really, of how we live as believers. He begins with this premise that the end of all things is near or the end of all things is at hand. And he said what that should mean for us is that we should then live self-controlled and we should be self-controlled and sober-minded. So the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is near. Therefore, we should, it should focus our attention. And that focus of attention then should lead to two things. Now remember, not every passage of Scripture is exhaustive. So Paul might take up two other things or six things or on another day Peter might have written nine things but but on this day to this group of people thus to us today he wrote two things really are primary if you're really focused because you realize that the end of all things is at hand first of all he says you will pray and the fact that the end of all things is near 
will focus your praying. And then secondly, to realize that we are to love one another. And he should say that love will manifest itself in various ways. He could have had a different list, but this is his list. He says these things should focus our attention, the end of all things, should focus our attention in such a way that as we love one another, we would be a forgiving group. That the love that we have for each other would cover a multitude of sins. That we would be a group of people who forgives one another. And we would be an hospitable group of people. We would be welcoming to one another and even to those on the outside. But we would be a welcoming group of people. So much so that we would do it joyfully. That is without grumbling. And then we would be a group of people that serves God in such a way that we use the gifts that he gives to us in order to bless the lives of each other, whether it's speaking or doing. And then we should do all of this for his glory, that is to reflect him. Do all of this to reflect him, his glory, which is to be our delight, because that's the purpose for which we've been created. So that's the sense of this paragraph in the scripture. So I want to take up just today this premise and then it's leading us to pray. The premise, the end of all things is at hand or you may have a translation that says the end of all things is near. Now that's a curious statement to read so many centuries after Peter said it. Well, when I would read that, I suppose if I were one of the first readers of this letter, I would think it's going to happen quickly, that that's what Peter would have meant. But obviously it isn't what he meant, otherwise he would have been wrong, because Jesus hadn't returned, hasn't returned. Uh, And so in that sense, it isn't at hand, it isn't near, wasn't near to Peter. So the question is, what sense is the end of all things at hand or near? When Peter wrote, in what sense was the end of all things at hand, the end of all things near, when Peter wrote? And I'm going to end up here, so it's here we're going to end. I'm going to end up that the end of all things is at hand, is near right now, in the same way it was at hand or near in Peter's day. You got that? Peter said the end of all things is at hand, it should focus our attention. Well, in what sense was it at hand then? I will say in the same way it's at hand now. You know, Peter knew not to try to put a date or a time on the second coming of Jesus. He would know that because Jesus told them not to. Jesus, in fact, you remember on one occasion said to them that no one knows. See, the angels in heaven don't know. Jesus said, I don't know. He said, only my father who is in heaven knows when the end will come. Peter would have heard Jesus say that. On another occasion, Jesus looked at his disciples and he says, you do not know, meaning his disciples, meaning Peter, you don't know the day or the hour. So, So Peter would be rather presumptuous in order to kind of put this out that he's going to come right away. So he simply didn't know. And you might remember, too, that when Jesus was with his disciples on that A day right before he ascended, the disciples of Jesus said, is now the time you're going to restore Israel, the kingdom to Israel. And Jesus said, that's not for you to know. 
The father has fixed that. Don't even ask that question. That is not the point at all. And, and, and two, Jesus, when he was with them, he told parables. And the parables gave this impression that there was going to be a delay, maybe even a long delay. I mean, the parable of the ten virgins, remember that, that wedding scene. Well, what happens? Well, the, the bridegroom waits to come. And the parable of the talents, where the master gives various gifts to, uh, to, to, to his servants, some money to his servants uh, to, to use and invest while the master is away. And then the master returns. So all of this is, is setting up for the fact that there is going to be this delay. Even Jesus said there's certain things that will happen before he returns. He says there'll be false Christs, false teachers. There'll be persecution in the church. <clears throat> Some will fall away. <clears throat> Excuse me, the love of many will grow cold towards him. There will be wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and all of that. That all will take place, he says. And many will hold true to the faith and the, and the, the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth. All of that before he returns. In fact, Peter knew that Jesus would not return in his lifetime. And he knew that because Jesus, at the end of John's gospel, you remember, Jesus told Peter how he was going to die. Now, if I'm Peter, I'm thinking, I hope he does, but I don't think he's going to. Because I don't want to die like that. Arms stretched out, in bondage, not free. In fact, when Peter writes his second epistle, he says, I'm about to die. I need to tell you this so you'll have this after I go. And so, so, so Peter wasn't at all thinking that Jesus is going to come right now. I think if you were to ask him, could he? Well, I said all these things. I'm going to die first. But maybe after that. I don't know. But, but not at the exact moment. So the question is, in what sense is the end of all things right at hand, near? What sense was it to him? Well, first this. That when Jesus died and was resurrected, the last days began. The last days began. You know, I, I like to confound people that are all into the end times prophecy stuff. Because uh, I still know. And so uh, when they say, do you think we're in the end times? And they go, well, of course. We've been in the end times since Jesus first came. That was the beginning of the end, if you will. And we know that because, and Peter would have known that, because he preached it in Acts in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the, when the Holy Spirit came. Uh, Peter tries to explain to everyone around what was going on when these tongues of fire came and the preaching of the gospel and all that. And, and he's so... Uh, verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice, this is Acts chapter 2, and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people aren't drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this, that is what was happening, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And here's how Joel put it, and in the last days it shall be that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So you see, the last days began then in the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so in that sense, it is at hand, the end of all things, the coming of... It is at hand. You see, 
when the end comes, we can expect this judgment, as we'll see in a minute, but also we can expect the renewal of the earth. And so, when the Holy Spirit came, you see, that was the beginning of this renewal, the very real presence of God on the earth, among his people. In the old covenant, God was present in, in, in shadow, in the temple. There he was. And then when Jesus was on the earth, he would say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. Why? Because he was there. And now it's nearer still, at hand more, because the Holy Spirit is here. You see, is here and among us. Because you see, when Jesus does return, there will be the new heavens and the new earth. We sang about this last Sunday. I don't know if you ever pay attention when you're singing. But we sang a hymn last Sunday called, This is My Father's World. And it has a line at the end of one of the verses that says, Jesus returns essentially, And earth and heaven are one. O-N-E, not W-O-N-E. When earth and heaven are one. You ever thought about what that means? When we think about that, what that means is that heaven, the place where God is, and earth, the place where we are, are together. Meaning that God's dwelling is with people, his people. We saw it in shadow form in the old covenant, in the temple. We see it in the presence of Jesus. We see it now with the presence of the Spirit. A day will come, you see, when we'll see it in all of its fullness, when the earth will be completely renewed, righteous, in every way, and God's people upon it, and God present with us. And what Peter's saying is, that's right here. It's at hand. The Spirit of God is here. And a day will come when the end of all things will come. Now, Peter knew how God counted time. For instance, in Second Peter, in chapter, in chapter 3, he puts it like this, verse 8. He says, but don't overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some of you count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. Peter's point in this whole passage in 2 Peter chapter 3 is that the flood came and destroyed. God now is being patient, but his patience will know an end. The day will come when his patience will end, and that will be the end, you see, of all things and the renewal of the earth for the people of God, so that God will be with his, God will be with his people. Now, what is it then that Peter means? He means it's right here among us by his spirit. It's close. It's near and a day will come. I've seen wars. I've heard rumors. I know there have been earthquakes. I know there's been persecution. I know the gospel can spread quickly. I saw it on the day of Pentecost. You need to realize that the end of all things is really true. It really will come. The way Peter puts it here in this passage, notice verse 10 of 2 Peter chapter 3 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, 
He's using the image of fire, so a roaring fire, if you will. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So, so he's saying it will be all burned up. That's the sense of all things. All things that we know. All things that we see. These all things. The heavenly bodies will be burned. And everything will be exposed and judged and all of that. Now this is a difficult thing for Peter to try to explain. I mean, how do you explain that which we've never seen? How do we explain that will only happen once? How do we explain that, that which is really, we haven't got a category in our brain for it. There's all kinds of movies that talk about the apocalypse and the end times. But I don't know about you, but anytime I see bits and pieces of those movies, they're always pretty cheesy. I mean, it's, and I feel for the directors and the actors and the writers and all of that, technicians, but, but it's just a hard thing to depict. How do you make that look real? We've never seen that. We really don't know what that's going to look like. Right? And so he's, he's saying, well, it's like a fire. It's like dissolving. It's like burning up. It's like all of this. So whatever that is, is what's going to take place. And I think John, the apostle, got a bit of a glimpse of it in the Revelation. In Revelation 18, John sees the fall of what he calls Babylon. You can play with this for a while, but just think of Babylon as, as the sinful world, if you will. The world that's in rebellion against God. And he says, for all of those who sunk deep into Babylon, who, who bought in to the world, that would be everyone other than those God has redeemed, who bought in, they were seduced by the world. The world says life exists in pleasure. Here's pleasure. The life, life exists in possessions. Here's possessions. Life exists in power. Seek power. Life exists in prestige. Go after status. If you have all of that, then you have real life. That's the seduction of the world. Because God says, no, it doesn't exist in possessions. It doesn't exist in status. It doesn't exist in that pleasure. It doesn't exist in power. Here's my power. Be satisfied in me. Here's, here's all that I give. Well, at the end, when Babylon was being judged, the kings and the merchants and the shipmasters, all these important people, saw Babylon destroyed and they were filled with fear and tremendous grief. Notice chapter 18 and verse 9 in Revelation. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her. Now again, John is using sexual immorality as a figure of speech, really, as an illustration, as an image to say what happened between these people in the world. And it's a good one. Well, A, because it's in the Bible. And, and, and B, because it's helpful to us. Because you see, God talks about our union with him by using the image of marriage. That's why he made marriage. And so he says there's this union between men and women. And it's to be a faithful, pure, committed, loyal relationship. And it's to show the relationship that I have with my people. That's how you are to be with me. 
You're, you're to be committed to me. You're to be loyal to me. You're to be faithful to me as I'm committed to you and loyal to you and faithful to you. And you are my people and I'm your God. Marriage is the image of that. That's why we, 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 we fight for marriage, if you will. That's why we speak of, of sexual intimacy only between a man, one man and, and his, his wife. Because in the purity of that, it images the purity and the faithfulness and the commitment that we have in relationship with God. And so when the scripture uses sexual immorality in this sense, or what the Apostle James speaks of as, as, as spiritual adultery, what God is saying is, we would join together and, and now you've been unfaithful. You're to be faithful to me. You've been unfaithful. You've gone after the love of another. You've allowed the love of another to lure you as opposed to my love, you see. And so, so the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They'll stand far off in fear of her torment. In fear of her torment because they realize they've bought in. They're one with her. And she's being destroyed. Everything that they hold dear, everything that they believed was valuable is now going up in smoke. They'll have nothing, all things. The end of all things, all sinful things, the end of all ungodly things is, is at hand. They'll stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. The end of all things is at hand. In a single hour. Again, Imagery that isn't 60 minutes. Could be the flash of an eye. Could be, I don't know. You get the point. It's near. They understood that. Now what Peter is saying here is, when we get that, when we understand that, it should focus our attention. He said, we should then be people, if we know that the end of all things is at hand, then we should be people who are self-controlled, that is, we won't go after all that other stuff. Won't be lured away because we know the end of it. We know what becomes of it. And we should be sober-minded. That is, we shouldn't be intoxicated with all the, the lure of Babylon, if you will. But rather, we should be thinking clearly, understanding where this leads. One of the great gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to us by way of the Scripture and His work in us is to unmask Sin. To say, no, 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 no. This is what this is leading to. See, I'm convinced all sin is, is covered in chocolate. It, it's impossible for me to believe that a Snickers bar, or the fifth one, is bad for me. I just cannot. I, it, it's a training of my mind that I've yet to get to, Right? And that's silly, of course, but sin is like that. It so deceives us. We think, no, this is it. This is good. This satisfies. But no, it's, it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be, it, it will lead to nothing of any value at all. You know, it looks like it will. So, Peter said it should focus our attention. Who is it? Uh, Samuel Johnson, the philosopher, writer, 18th century, put it like this. He said, depend upon it, sir. 
When a man knows he's to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates, it, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. In other words, when you get it, when you see the end, you, you, you get serious about life. Moses, more authoritatively put it like this. He said, teach us, teach me to number my days so that I may get a heart of wisdom. Now, now Moses wasn't speaking about the second coming in Psalm 90, one of the Psalms attributed to him. He was speaking about our lives like a vapor. It's, it's, it's 70 years, 80 years maybe, but in the whole scheme of things in all of eternity, that's not much. It's going to be gone faster than you can, you can imagine. And so he says, learn to number them. Learn to realize that everyone is significant, has great value. Because when you learn to number, when you begin to see today from the end, then you become wise. And we know this. We have to see today from where it's ending. If you're going to plan a trip, you've got to know where the destination is in order to know the right routes. Be silly to plan a route with no destination. Uh, and so there are wake-up calls to us. Uh, sometimes a wake-up call is, is going to your doctors, and, and he tells you, and you go, oops, this life will lead to that physically, so, so I need to change some things. And maybe for a student, a wake-up call is going to his or her advisor and realizing that you're now on the 14-year plan. And so if you're going to be only on the six-year plan or the five-year plan or whatever your plan, lesser, that, that you have to, you, this is the end. And so if this is the end, then this is how you you get there. We, we know that. We see that. And that's Peter's point. Sober up. Serious up. Think it through. The end of all things is near. Now I must say that at this point in this sentence, I'm a bit surprised that he says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be Self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I was thinking, he would say, therefore live a holy life. No, I think he wouldn't disagree with that. In fact, he says a very similar thing in Second Peter in chapter 3, verse 11. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So he would agree that's... That's good, but, but, but that's not his point right here. This is consistent with holiness and godliness. But he says, listen, you should pray if you really understand that the end of all things is at hand. You should really pray. That's the first thing. Now, he'll say we should love too, but, but that's the first thing. It should sober us up and move us to our knees. What that tells me is that when I'm not praying, I'm probably deceived. When I'm not praying, I probably think all is well. When I'm not praying, I probably think I can handle this. Or when I'm not praying, I'm probably thinking there really are no strong enemies of my soul. Well, when I'm when I'm not praying, I'm, I'm, I'm probably thinking, you know, this this uh, evangelism of the world thing, that'll probably go fine. Right. Everything will be OK. And he says, no, no, no. Think about this. 
The end of all things is at hand. It should cause me to hit my knees, really, and to begin to pray. Again, no surprise that this would come to Peter's mind. He, he learned it from, from Jesus. I read earlier in our service from Luke chapter 21, verse 34, Jesus speaking of, of his coming. Verse 34, he says, but watch, which is another way of saying be self-controlled and sober-minded. Luke 21, 34, he says, but watch yourselves. Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And now Jesus, remember the parable of the sower that Jesus told. He, he understood human beings. And he said, sometimes the word goes out and it gets among thorns. And they can choke out the seed, that was his image, or choke out the word. And what were the thorns? The thorns were the cares of this life. They weigh us down. You get us stuck in the moment. Right? The cares of this life. You get us stuck in the moment. When I'm worried, all I can think about is that. The cares and the deceitfulness of riches to think, oh, if I'm rich, if I have enough, then I'll be fine. You remember the, we call him the rich fool. That's his sort of moniker in all the headings in the scripture. He was the one who had success. And since he had success, he says, I'll just build bigger barns. And I'll store all of it. And then he died because he wasn't rich towards God. So he was foolish, you see. He, he thought that, he had, that, that all was well, the deceitfulness of riches. So Jesus said, watch yourselves and lest, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation, that is, the, the, the pursuit of pleasure. And drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day, we know what that day is, the day of the Lord, this day of judgment. That that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell in the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times praying. This is Jesus' word. Stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. By escape, he doesn't mean avoid them, that you'll be able to run away from them, that they won't affect you, that they won't come, these difficulties. But escape them in the sense that they won't grab your faith, that they won't grab your attention, that they won't lure you in, lure you in that you won't be seduced by them and, and forget about God. But that way you can stand before the Son of Man. That's what Jesus said. You wonder if, if Peter didn't, Remember that night. I don't know about you, but in my life, there are certain days that are that day. Certain times that are that time. Certain nights that are that night. And I think if I were Peter, that night for me would have been that night that Jesus was betrayed. The whole of it. And it began... In the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember Luke 22:39, And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
I get a sense that Peter would reflect back on that and, and, and would have said, rats, I should have prayed. But Jesus knew the end of all things was near. I mean, he got it. He understood exactly what was taking place. You know, sometimes we read this passage of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's he's so distressed. And even Luke says he's sweating in such a way that he references drops of blood. And so you 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 realize the distress of Jesus and, and he's agonizing with his father. If there's any way this cup can pass, please take it. And we wonder what's going on. But what's going on there is that Jesus gets it. He knows he isn't just about to die. And he isn't just about to die for a good cause. I mean, there have been people who have gone to their death singing dying for a good cause. Not afraid at all. But Jesus knows that, yes, he's dying for a good cause. But what this means is he has to take the wrath of God. He gets it. He understands he's dying like a sinner dies. And he knows it. Every human being unforgiven should Plead with God before his death like this. Jesus understood that. And he was very self-controlled, focused. He was very sober-minded at that point in time. And he knew what he had to do was work this out with his father. He knew that he had to get this final piece of assurance, even in going to the cross. The disciples, even though Jesus had told them, was, they were clueless. It seems still. And I think... Um, Reflection, I suspect Peter would say, no, 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 no. When you know what the end is like, you'll be self-controlled and sober-minded like Jesus, and you will pray. So, so do, do that. But the question is then, how, what would we pray? And please, I'm not saying at all that we shouldn't pray about the things in our lives, the difficulties that we have and the, and the suffering that we're going through and the disease that we feel and the insecurities that we have and, and, and all of those things are important to us. And the scripture says that we should pray about everything and worry about nothing. But I don't know about you, but my prayers can get very today focused. And not so much with the end in sight. I mean, that's true, isn't it? Sometimes when I'm in difficulty, all I can see is the difficulty. And all that I want is for that difficulty to go away. That's all I can see. But then I ask someone to come and pray for me. Or people come to pray with me. And they say, they see the end. And so they, like if I'm really sick and all I care about is feeling better. They come and they pray things like, oh, help Bill be a good witness. And I'm thinking, I don't really care about that. I just don't want to feel bad. But they see the end. They, they see where this is going. They see what's really valuable. Or, 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 or pray that Bill will glorify you, that they'll learn through this. And I'm going, no, no, I just want to stop throwing up. That's all. Just pray that. Well, they usually get to that because they're nice and all that. But, but they see what's really valuable in all of this. And so Peter's saying, focus. So if I'm focused... Wouldn't, wouldn't I begin to pray something like this? This isn't unique to me. I think you'll see the source. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Don't you think that would come to mind? That God, the end of all things is near, so please enable us to see your holiness. If we don't see your holiness, we're sunk. Enable me to see you. Enable the world to see your holiness. May your name be hallowed in this place. Because when the end of all things comes, that's too late. Well, then we'll, we'll see it. But for those who don't see it now, that'll be their demise. And so, so what I really need to be praying about, in addition to all these other things, is that your name, God, would be hallowed. It would know that you're holy. And, and God, please, bring your rule, your kingdom, your will. Do that in this place, wherever I am. Do it in my own life. The end of all things is there. May we know your rule, your kingdom. Your rule is a kingdom of grace. And so bring your grace. Rule upon us by your grace. Bring forgiveness. Bring your mercy. Bring your compassion to me and to, and to us. Your kingdom. What is your will? How should I be living? God, help me to live that way. Help others to live that way. Be holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us. Just... Just the reflection, just the notion that the Lord is returning and I'm going to see him face to face. I've, I've thought about that. Songs have been written about that again. It's just so unimaginable. The songs, bless them, are often cheesy as well. But, but, but we think about seeing the Lord and people say, what, what will be the first thing? You know, we say, well, we'll ask him this question, we'll ask him that. I think I'm just going to say I'm sorry. I mean, I, I mean, Really? I mean, when I see the Lord in his holiness, and I know I'll be transformed in all of that, so I don't know what's going to happen. But, but my sense right now, if he walked in right now, I'd say, I'm sorry. You know, please forgive me. I know, but please, in your presence, please forgive me. And then because he so graciously forgives me, then forgive. So God, please enable me to know your forgiveness. Please enable us to be a forgiving people. For me to be a forgiving person. Because I've been forgiven. I'm dependent upon you. Thus, please give me all that I need day by day. But don't let me worry about the next day. or plan, yes, all of that. But don't let me be concerned. Don't let me worry. Don't let me think that you may get me through today as you got me through yesterday. But tomorrow, oh, forget it. No, no, no. Let me, let me trust you for today and all that I need. And I pray that you bring to everyone all that they need so that we can make today today and glorify you. And God, I'm weak, so please sovereignly rule over all the circumstances of my life. And I pray you not lead me to a place of temptation so much that I'll disown you, disgrace you, besmirch your name, but rather deliver me from evil. What's important here is that it's your kingdom, your glory. Forever. Wouldn't I pray like that if I have if I have the end in sight? When the disciples of Jesus, and I'll just give you a few, when the disciples of Jesus were uh, being persecuted, even you would think, I would think, they would pray that the persecution stops. In Acts chapter four, they say, "Sovereign Lord, you made everything." They're persecuting us like they did to Jesus. And here's their prayer. 
Verse 29, Acts chapter 4. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and, and uh, signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I have a tendency to pray that the pain goes away. And the difficulties, the people just leave me alone. And they pray, no, 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 I get it. The end of all things is near. We can't just stop here. God, in your, in, in your power, give us boldness to continue to proclaim this truth. They need to hear it, even our persecutors. Later on, as he appoints elders and churches, he commends them to the Lord and they pray for them. Why? Because the leaders of the church need need this prayer. In Ephesians and chapter one, Paul being self-controlled and sober minded for the people in Ephesians in chapter one, he prays that they may know the Lord. He prays that they may know their hope. Think about that. To know the hope that we have and to know the very power of God that's at work in our lives. And in chapter 3, he prays that they'd be strengthened by the very presence of Christ in them. Strengthen us so that we continue to believe in, and more so, that we'd know your love so that we can love. In Ephesians in chapter 6, that to pray, taking up the word of God and pray because they need the word of God at work in their lives. And so as they take it up, to take it up. Praying so that they can proclaim it boldly in Philippians in chapter one, verses nine and ten. He says, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's praying for them. He sees it. He sees that the end of all things is at hand. And so he says, he says, you need to, to be loving to one another. I'm going to pray for you that you love one another. Don't think that happens naturally. Don't think you wake up in the morning and you go, oh, I'm just a lover. You wake up in the morning and say, God, I know me. Enable me to really love today. Don't skip that step. Because if you skip that step... Even if you find yourself loving during the day, you're going to be saying, I'm terrific. But if you prayed about it first, you're going to say thank you to God because he's enabled you to love it. And, and give me, therefore, as one who loves this gift to be able to approve what is excellent, to know your will so that I'll be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. We could go on finding these prayers. Summer's coming. Summer's always a problem for me. People are here, there, and everywhere and scattered. And it's difficult. We, we lose a sense of community often. And then again, where we're going is fine and all of that. But focus, even in summer. Be self-controlled, sober-minded. Don't forget. Even on the beach and even in the mountains and even here and there and everywhere in our relaxation that we need. Still, I mustn't. Could I suggest you mustn't forget that the end of all things is at hand. Pray. Speaking of which, let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us that we would understand the seriousness of the day in which we live. 
and to understand that which is to come. And Father, on the one hand, we as believers glory in the fact that earth and heaven will be one. The very presence of God among us in this real, real, tangible way. Through all eternity, we look forward to that. We understand what happens first. And so, Father, I pray, we pray, that you would be holy. And we would know your holiness. That your kingdom would come. Your will would be done. That you would cause us to be dependent on you and know our dependence upon you in such a way that we give you thanks for all that you give to us day by day. That we confess that we forgive. That you would deliver us from evil. That we would live for your glory. That we'd have boldness. That we would know you and the hope to which you call us. That we would know the power that is at work within us. That your word would be powerful in us. That we would be bold to proclaim it. And that we would love. And that we would discern well your will. Father, we are grateful. For the safe return of our, those ones we've sent out to Haiti, Romania. Especially, Father, we're grateful for how you orchestrated bringing the Romanian team back. And pray that this sinks deep within them. That they will know that you hear their prayers. And that you're gracious. And that your ways are good and right. And so, Father, I pray that not only their work would have been very productive and lasting in the orphanage. And those in Haiti, their work would be productive and lasting in that place. But also, Father, that each that one on these trips would know that you are near to them. And Father, for us as a church, I pray that you would be with us. That you would help us uh, to be able to live out this life of love and hospitality and forgiveness and serving in such a way that people would look at our lives and the life of our church and know that you are the great God who loves and forgives and that many would come to you. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.